Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. So I'm sitting on the balcony of the Groucho Club, the glamorous Groucho Club at the media heart of London's West End. And I've just had a very pleasant lunch with Henry Pryor. Now, Henry is one of the UK's leading housing market commentators. Whenever they're talking about housing on the BBC, Henry's face will appear uttering great wisdom. And uh, Henry is also a buying agent, and he said to me over lunch something that so astounded me that I felt the need to record a podcast straight away. And he offered me an evens bet that in 10 years' time, house prices will be 50% lower than where they are today. And I found that bet incredible. So, Henry, I know it, it was... Um, the, the the pleasures of lunch might have got the better of you a little bit, but but justify that that bet for me. Well, Dominic, it was indeed a fantastic lunch, and obviously uh, I may well have been corrupted by the uh, ambiance <laughs> of the Groucho. But um, my concerns about the housing market stem from uh, something I was taught bouncing on the knee of uh, on the knees of, of the great property investors. Uh, house prices aren't a straightforward function of supply and demand, but of the availability and cost of credit. Now, if we've learned anything over the last 12 months, it is that uncertainty and, as a result, predictions are incredibly difficult, if not indeed foolhardy. When we look at the availability of credit and the cost of credit, first of all, it's incredibly difficult to foresee a time where credit would be any cheaper. We're already at record 350-plus year lows when it comes to the cost of borrowing money to finance something as ordinary as a property. But also that availability is now getting uh, much tighter, much tougher, and we're struggling to find uh, new ways of coming up with lending people even more money. So people are coming up with uh, mortgages guaranteed by your grandparents. We're looking at longer terms, 30-year terms, against the normal 25-year, for example. These are all ways that the industry is finding of lending people frankly, money that they would otherwise be unable to borrow in order to continue to fund the housing habit that we have inherited. But the people who sell credit are entrepreneurs and they have great imaginations and they're often capable of finding new ways by which to sell credit. I mean, the way I read the credit markets at the moment is that if you already have a mortgage, then the cost of owning a home is cheap. But if you don't have a mortgage, it's harder to get one. Um, but the fact is, the fact that mortgage servicing costs are so cheap for those that already have them surely will prop up the market. But my point is that they can only get more expensive. And whatever we face as we exit our relationship with the EU, whatever we face as a result of the new regime that's been elected into the White House, whatever happens as we head along the next decade uh, to the economic waves that, buff, that batter and buffer us, we're almost invariably going to find that the cost and availability of money will get tougher, it will harden, and as a result, it will become harder for people, those that don't have a mortgage, to get one. 
and the market is predicated on those first-time buyers, those first steppers, the people who want to scramble on to the lower rungs of the housing ladder. If you take them away, you are then entirely dependent on a market that is based on current equity. And whilst the Bank of Mum and Dad has done a sterling job over the last probably two, three years to continue to fund the market in the way it has done, I suspect that the enthusiasm will wane. The Bank of Mum and Dad was operating in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always been there, yeah. uh, often when you needed it. Uh, but in order for it to continue to support the housing market, something that we may touch on again later in this podcast, but one of the things that is essential for politicians and their survival... Uh, remember, politicians are spectacularly forgiving of fiscal ineptitude um, when it comes to their plans for the economy. The electorate will forgive them pretty much anything if they feel a little bit fatter in their wallets. So if you can make... Uh, the electorate a little bit uh, uh, better off or feel a little better off, they will inevitably be a little more forgiving about what it is that you are or are more unlikely to be not doing when it comes to the wider economy. I want to talk about political attitude to house prices um, because it's my view that the, the property crash of the late 80s, early 90s is what made the Tories unelectable for you know half a generation. And... I think it, the fact that, you know, that property crash with people putting their keys back through the doors and that kind of thing, you know, people remembered that so clearly that I think that drove a lot of the policies of Blair and Brown and then eventually of the coalition government uh, that house prices must be protected at all costs. And I think that was foremost in, in regulators and policymakers' minds uh, in the reaction to the financial crisis of 2008. We must protect house prices. But Dominic, that, that suggests that we've forgotten what it was uh, that caused the financial crisis or, at least crisis, or at least a huge part of it. Those uh, listeners who have watched have seen the big short, those who have lived through <laughs> previous downturns will understand that when Gordon Brown stood up in 2002 and said, you know, I will not allow house prices to get out of control, when we saw Grant Shapps as housing minister uh, for the early coalition government talking about an end to boom and bust. These were political promises, and nobody expected or indeed believed that they would keep them. The problem, is, the problem we face today is that 40% of transactions in the market across the United Kingdom are cash deals. These are people who are enabling the market to continue uh, to operate effectively as a game of musical chairs and keep the music uh, uh, playing, because they are able to lend money to their kids in order to be able to, for their kids to be able to buy and pay the prices that they and their and their parents' generation uh, are asking for their properties. Now, I think that this is unsustainable, or at least there's a 50% chance that this is unsustainable. And at some point, someone's going to wake up, and the music will stop, and there will not be enough chairs for people to sit down on. How much does has the because with Osborne's higher stamp duty rates, he kind of attacked the top end of the market. That was a deliberate attempt to kind of... To, to a political manoeuvre, yes. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, there's a lot of people lobbying for stamp duty to be removed. Or well, a lot of estate agents lobbying for stamp and, duty and, to be changed. And market commentators as well. Um, but what I want to ask you is, is, is how much of a driver of, uh, of, of current market activity are those higher stamp duty rates? Are they, you know, if we remove them and we went back to They're three not a driver five. of the market, they're a break on the market. That's sure. exactly what Osborne and Cameron were trying to achieve. Because they had lost control of people's borrowing and the ability to influence uh, people's spending habits through higher interest rates, because as we've seen, interest rates uh, are so low, um, 
they had to find another way of trying to put the brakes on the housing market, and transaction friction was one of the few ways that they could do that. Now, we're faced with a market that is, as I say, entirely driven, in my view, by the ability of uh, parents to be able to provide the relevant funding or the guarantees for the necessary funding for those on the next generation to be able to afford to get on to the lower rungs mm-hmm. of the housing ladder. I'll give you a, a classic example. Yeah, go on you end up, I've got some clients who are selling in Wandsworth, a very average £3 million house in Wandsworth. Of course, nationally that's absurd, but it was a very average family house in Wandsworth. They wanted to sell it, downsize, they wanted to give their two sons some money in order to, for them to get onto the housing ladder. Instead of it being worth 3.3 million, as they were told by three agencies in the spring of 2016, it was actually only worth two and a half million. That means that if they're going to buy something else for their retirement, they no longer have the ability to be able to give their kids the money that they need, the children, to be able to afford 700,000 for a two-bedroom flat in Brixton. The idea that a two-bedroom flat in Brixton could be worth 700,000 is the most, you know, it, that's what makes the whole thing possible. That's why those of us who take a dispassionate view of the market, in my opinion, think that this is probably towards the end of the of Act 1, not the beginning of Act 2. This is the, the, the threats that hang over the housing market uh, that, that is fundamentally based upon confidence are so shallow and so fragmented that the market, uh, the jeopardy in the market means that I think it's reasonable to be able to offer 50-50 on where house prices might be in, 12 months, in 10 years' time. Um, what about, I think a big factor that maybe doesn't get considered so much is is second and third steppers. Uh, do you know what I mean by that? So people it's a who a ghastly expression, but yes, I know it exactly is a ghastly I mean. expression, yeah. and and it, it wasn't me who coined it. <laughs> the um, but the idea I'm t- just going to explain it for listeners that people selling their first or their second home to buy a bigger place, and the equity they have in their existing home being a big driver of of future house prices. And so, for example, if you're selling your you know your one your two bed flat in Brixton for seven hundred grand, and you've got a I don't know a two or a three hundred grand mortgage. That's giving you four hundred grand or something like that to to be a make a big part of the deposit on the next home that you buy. How big an impact are second steppers having on all of this? Well, they have a huge impact on the market uh, at any stage in the cycle uh, because inevitably two thirds of the market aren't aren't. Um, relying on absolute values. It's all about the difference between what they sell for and what they pay for the next one. So whether they pay £400,000 extra or £40,000 extra is irrelevant. Market activity still enables the market to function if they've got that gap between what they sell for and what they pay. But the driver of the market, the foundations of the market, are first-time buyers and what they are able to borrow and the cost that that borrowing um, is to them. And so the fact that the top end of the market, the parents who are downsizing in order to fund the first-time buyer, the fact that that's dried up is Im- impacting the first-time buyer. That's why what's happening at the top end of the market is so important. So an awful lot of people uh, cry crocodile tears when they hear about the impact that Osborne's stamp duty changes have made to the top end of the market. And they have made a considerable uh, difference to the market. Transactions at the top end are down by 50%. Prices in Kensington and Chelsea, I would argue, are 15 to 20% off where they were 12 did months ago. Did they know ago. what they were doing when they did that stamp duty? Did they know? No, they were, what they were doing was reacting to the electorate who said house prices in London and the South East were out of control, and if there was a bubble, that's where it was. We were getting, you know, we were, we were looking at 10 or 15% per annum house price inflation, which A is unsustainable, B is unhealthy, and it, C ensures uh, almost inevitable political Armageddon. The two biggest threats to the housing market remain, in my opinion, political interference and civil unrest. 
if you relieve, if you remove even the mildest opportunity for people to dream of being able to either rent or own their own home, they take matters into their own hands. If you look back over the last three years at the political interference in the housing market, whether it's changes to stamp duty land tax, to landlords' taxes uh, in terms of buy-to-let investors, or indeed as recently as today when we've seen the changes that are being brought forward for letting agents, those changes will make a material difference to the market. They will influence as a result prices, and people's decision-making processes will inevitably be impacted. How big an impact on house prices are earnings? Well, earnings uh, are are the fundamental um, part of the equation in terms of what the multiple of those earnings people can then borrow. As you rightly said earlier in the piece, we end up uh, looking at finance based on the enthusiasm of uh, innovators and and entrepreneurs to lend money on whatever terms they find they, 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 they can do that. But if we look at straightforward residential yields, they're in... Uh, historically, they should be around 6%, uh, bearing in mind how illiquid property is, how difficult it is to manage and uh, extract that yield. But in London and the South East, those yields gross are around 4%, net possibly down as little as 2.5%, uh, which on, in long term, on a, taking a long-term view, is far too low. So either the rents have to rise. Now, rents aren't a factor of, of leverage. You can't borrow to pay your rent. Yeah, I get the relationship These things are important. Earnings, yeah not just for you, but more importantly for the listener to understand, why one could be as bearish as I appear to be. As I have mentioned many times in the past, you only have to look at a part of the United Kingdom where house prices are still 50% below where they were before the credit crunch in 2007. In Northern Ireland, people there will be able to assure you that house prices, unlike what most people on mainland Britain think, house prices can go down as well as up. Tell me some of those statistics about uh, sales that you were telling me over over lunch, the, the amount of property there is on right, right move and the amount of property there is actually selling. Well, it gives you a very good, I think, very good understanding as to exactly what the reality of the market is. Inevitably, the vast majority of news that we digest comes from people who are selling things. Nobody wants to instruct a depressed estate agent. No one wants to borrow money from somebody uh, who thinks that the cost of that money is going to increase. So as a result, they uh, are hardwired to view the glass as being half full. If you search Rightmove today, that huge uh, internet portal uh, for million-pound-plus homes inside the M25, it will return 14,000 properties. Now, a million pounds, obviously, is twice the average house price in London, but it still buys you a very average house in the capital. But last month, the number of, of sales at that level was only 313, which means... So, got, so, so 313 sales in 14,000 million pound plus properties? So inside London, where there are 14,000 properties for sale, at last a, month, at a million pounds plus, just last 313. month, just 313 sold. If you take that nationally, there were over 50,000 million pound plus properties across the United Kingdom as a whole in the first half of this year. And according to the Land Registry, only 6,000 sold. So, so nationally, it's just over 10%. In London, it's less. So it's but important. 313 in 40, I can't even begin to work that, it's less than 5%. So the important thing to remember is that the challenges that people face, actually, when it comes to selling, are far greater than many people would think and imagine that they are when they come to buy something. And that tells us, that's the windsock that tells us the direction of the London housing market from where... uh, traditionally it ripples out across the rest of the country. What I've noticed in London is that while Zone 1 has slowed down 
quite dramatically. And by zone one, I kind of mean a little bit bigger than zone one. If you imagine the circle line... You'd make a good estate agent. <laughs> would. Um, so you've got, I don't know, maybe Earl's Court in the west and, say, Tower Bridge in the east and Regent's Park in the north and Vauxhall in the south. If you imagine that kind of circle of, I think what they call it, PCL, Prime Central London... Now, that, that part of London has dramatically slowed down, but if you go and kind of go a bit further out to the kind of up-and-coming areas, um, in, in inverted commas, the Brockleys, the Tootings, the, the Crouch Ends, these kind of places, the market's a lot more buoyant, and, and I wonder if those kind of, in zones kind of two and three, houses tend to be bought by people who actually live and work in London, whereas in that zone one area that is but, determined by the overseas buyer. But Dominic, you, forgive me, you've swallowed a, a, a Savile's press release. <laughs> what the reality is, if you look at the latest land registry reports on yeah. the health of the nation's housing market, remember this is a new, uh, it's the government's official barometer of house prices, it's UK-wide, it's not just England and Wales anymore. Those numbers published for July of this year, comparing July with July in 2015, tell us that in London, transaction volumes in London, not the rarefied Prime Central London, Mayfair, end of the Monopoly Board market, but across London, transactions were down 43%. 43%. Now, the number of businesses that are predicated How does that on... compared to 2014? Do you, do you know? Do you have that figure? Well, 20, 2015 on 2014. No, I mean, so 2016 to 2015 is down 43%. Correct. What about 2015 to 2014? So we're down now at about 15% below the long-term average. Okay. Um, which may or may not give us an indication of future direction. Personally, turnover is what will inevitably dictate prices in the future because there will always be more people who have to sell, who must sell, death, debt and divorce being the key drivers, than there are people who must buy. It's very difficult to find somebody who must buy a property. If they if they have to move, they will always consider renting. Are you personally you, getting a lot of inquiries from buyers, potential buyers? For me, this yeah. is this is one of it's the most exciting market in my 27 years in property that I can remember. There have never been more reasons more justifiable, more credible reasons that you as a buyer could give an estate agent for negotiating and haggling on the price than we have today. There are so many icebergs, there are so many uncertainties that you can genuinely put forward, not least of all the fact that unlike 12 or 24 months ago where viewings were conducted within one hour on a Saturday morning with 30 other people, today, bearing in mind the statistics I've just given you, you can understand that estate agents will wine and dine you. They will take you out and, and schmooze you in order to get... No, but what a, I'm asking you, Henry, is are you getting inquiries your, from, from buyers? Are you having people phone you up and say, Henry, there's an opportunity here, find me a house to buy? More and more. I get more and more inquiries from people who understand or, or appreciate that the market is changing, that it's in flux, and that as a result there are opportunities. Buying what is, for most people, their most expensive asset is not something, even if they're the chief executive of a FTSE 100 company, that they do every day. I bid on a house every week. I buy one every month. I'm not a particularly interesting or exciting lunch companion, as you've just discovered. <laughs> but at the end of the I day... I would take issue with that. But at the end of the day, it's the one thing that I do understand something about. I'm not emotionally involved in it. I can see the broader picture. But I'm, broader I'm asking you, is, is there cash on the sidelines waiting to buy? Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a wall of cash because what else can people do with it? Not only with property can they buy something that may be a potential investment, but it is also somewhere where they can live 
create memories, make friends. So isn't that going to cash going to send prices higher? No, because this, the cash is cautious cash. It's a, it's a, um, cash that is is waiting for the right moment to strike. Very few people, as I said before, must buy something by Christmas, must be moved in by Easter. There are some people inevitably who have want to get uh, want to be moved by next September when little Johnny starts school. But by and large, if you say to somebody, do you want to buy something today that may be cheaper tomorrow, uh, they will wait until they are convinced and confident that that is the time to strike. Did, did you get a lot more phone calls after the Brexit vote? I got a lot of calls from people. I got a lot more calls than I had before the Brexit vote because what Brexit did for property was to create uncertainty. Now, that uncertainty provides opportunity for professional advisors, whether they are estate agents or lawyers or accountants, because... For so many years now, perhaps 25, 30 years, buying and selling properties has been perceived by the majority of the public and of the consumers as being something that anyone can do. In reality, it's as complicated as any other and in some ways more risky than any other financial investment that anyone makes. If you own a property uh, and you don't need to own it, maybe it's a rental property, a buy-to-let, and it's... It, yeah, let's say you own a buy-to-let or because a lot of people have a buy-to-let, a second home. In London, a flat that you don't live in, would you be selling it? What would you advise now? Well, my advice is not to work, not to base uh, the success of that investment on what you thought it was worth, but to look back at what you paid for it, look at the return you're getting now, uh, and look, how, uh, look at how else you could better leverage that capital investment. So if you can get out and cash in that investment and crystallise whatever capital gain you've made, you'll almost certainly be able to reinvest it more successfully, more aggressively uh, than wherever it is today. Is that why Osborne slash capital gains tax, as well, as well as increasing stamp duty to encourage people to sell? What Osborne and Cameron wanted was to redress what they saw as an imbalance in tenure. They wanted more people to own their prop- own properties than to be investors and landlords providing additional stock to the private rented sector. We now, in the UK, have a 24-year low in home uh, ownership. That is something that Osborne and Cameron put down pretty much squarely in terms of blame on investors. Ironically, having freed up the pensions environment and made it, in, in fact, encourage people to look at alternative forms of investment like property. Henry Pryor, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. I can recommend all my listeners who uh, participate on Twitter to follow Henry on Twitter, at Henry Pryor. Um, do you have a website that you want to mention? If anyone about? is suffering from insomnia and needs uh, a cure, then www.henrypryor.com. And let me ask you one more question, Henry. Why don't the BBC... The BBC have a political correspondent, they have an economics correspondent, various economics correspondents... Why don't they have a property correspondent? I'm not sure I'm very well qualified to answer that, but my guess is that, as with the majority of the public, property has been seen, bearing in mind it's the largest single asset class out there, £7.7 trillion. I suspect that most people in the BBC, as as well as others uh, more widely spread, would think that anybody could do it. You, uh, I suppose, but you are, if they did, you are effectively the BBC's property correspondent, if not in title, in practice. Well, you're very kind. Henry Pryor, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. 
To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 